certainly good to see this number present this morning. We appreciate the effort that you've made to be here. I hope everybody got the time right anyway. Uh, I was talking about time. I watched the news last night, and the lady on the news said, uh, be sure to set your clocks back. So uh, if everybody listened to her, they'd be probably a couple hours late, I suppose. <laughs> I'm not sure. Thankful the weather guy got up and corrected that, so <laughs> and, and got that got that right. So, but uh, we do indeed appreciate uh, very much you being here. Couldn't help but think of Gerald when I saw him standing up here. He reminds me so much of his dad, and uh, I just uh, thought the world of his dad. His dad was such a such a fine fine man. I had the privilege of working with him for several years at uh, Tullahoma when I was the, when I was there, and so. I appreciated him so so very much, and there's several people in the audience this morning that I've loved and appreciated all throughout the years. And I hope as we spend the, the week together that we'll all uh, draw a little closer, all be encouraged a little bit, be more dedicated and more determined. I don't know about you, but I look forward to the time we can all go home and all be together, and we never have to say goodbye. I look forward to that time. Those are the difficult things for me to do, at least. I'm a pretty emotional sort of fellow, and the older I get, the worse I get. And uh, it's, it's amazing how that, how that works. I held a meeting one time in Richland, Virginia, and I always remember there was a fellow who was a member of the church there by the name of Bill Sword. He was as fine a fellow as I've ever met. He was a good, uh, had an evangelistic spirit about him. He always wanted to share the gospel with other people. And I'll always remember looking in the rearview mirror and watching him wave to me by as I left. And I never saw him again. Those were tough. But, uh, you know, we look forward to spending eternity uh, together. And, you know, really a part of that has to do with our, <clears throat> obviously, with our hearts. You know, we talked about heart condition this morning, and certainly we can have heart condition. We can have physical heart conditions. I remember when I was in Nashville preaching there that we had a man there who was a member who had a heart transplant. He lived 10 years after he had the heart transplant. Probably would have lived a lot longer if he'd have taken care of himself like the doctor told him to do, but he didn't listen as well, and he didn't. But regardless of that, he had a physical heart condition. But yet I've known a lot of people through the years that have had a spiritual heart condition. And one of the things that we need if uh, there is sin in our lives, if we violated God's law in any way, if we have done something against our brothers and sisters in Christ, and that is that we need a contrite heart. And it's, if we have that kind of heart, then we'll make our lives right with God. We'll make our lives right with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you realize that a lot of churches have problems and I have seen churches through the years that they divide and separate and a lot of it has to do sometimes with the heart and heart conditions the attitude of heart that people have toward one another and yet the Bible tells us how to deal with people and he tells us the kind of hearts that we obviously need I'm thankful for the brother reading Psalm 51 particularly verses 17 and the verses previous to this where it indicated that God was not so much interested in sacrifice and offerings. And we see that quite often. It's not that he didn't require that under the Old Testament law, because we know that he did. 
But yet he wanted them to sacrifice and offer, make those offerings from a pure heart and from a contrite heart and from a heart that was seeking to please and to honor and to glorify him. That's what he expected of them. Here it said the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. How did he feel toward those sacrifices that would be offered when there was sin in their lives and there was not a contrite heart on the part of an individual? Did he, was he pleased with that? You know, when we offer the sacrifices of praise to, the, to our God, when we worship Him and partake of the Lord's Supper, and yet when there's sin in our hearts and sin in our lives, and when we have violated God's law, do, do you think that He accepts our worship and our service? You know, Jesus talked about if you come and offer, bring your gift to the altar and said you remember that your brother has something against you, what does He tell you to do? Just ignore it? Go on and worship anyway? No, he tells you to go and make your life right with that brother. That's what he tells us to do. And if our worship is to be acceptable, then obviously that's what we have to do. The word contrite, according to the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, says a contrite heart is one in which the natural pride and self-sufficiency have been completely humbled by the consciousness of guilt. Pride and self-sufficient. Does pride destroy us? Can unless we control it. Have you ever felt self-sufficient? You know, God can humble you very quickly. I'm going to take it. He can make you realize how much you, how much you need Him. Throughout lifetime, that's happened to me on several different occasions. One particular time that I remember extremely well. Tony Lancaster, one of our elders, he and I was having a Bible study in Lewisburg. We were pretty well through with the Bible study and just so happened I had turned my phone back up. Sylvia called me. Normally, I don't answer the phone, but just for some reason that that, on that occasion, I did. She said, something bad has happened to Canaan. Canaan is our little grandson. He had a seizure and fell off the couch. Absolutely terrified me. I don't believe I've ever felt so humbled and so insufficient in life and to realize how much we needed God than on that occasion. If that had been me, that had been fine. But not when it's your grandkids. You know, little things like that sometimes can teach us great lessons, can't you? Thankful he was okay. He had a fever that spiked and spent a little time in the ER. They let him come home. But it was terrifying at that time. Nelson's Bible Dictionary said the person with a contrite spirit weeps over wrongdoing and expresses genuine sorrow for his sin. That's a contrite heart. 
If there's any sin in your life today, do you have a contrite heart that would be willing to repent of those sins and seek forgiveness? If there's any problem between you and a brother or sister in Christ, do you have a contrite heart and do you want to make that right between them? Sometimes that's the problem, it, that we don't have that contrite heart. So let's think a little bit about that. You know, really a contrite heart is one that will acknowledge, acknowledge the sin that they have maybe in their lives. You know, I'm so afraid sometimes that at night we simply say, Lord, forgive me of all my sins that I have committed this day without any thought or consideration about the sins themselves without any godly sorrow at all for the sins that we may be guilty of. There's godly sorrow that's connected with forgiveness of sins. That I'm sorry for the sins that I've committed. And that I don't want to commit those sins over and over and over again. And working to conquer and overcome those things. And if I've sinned against a brother, that I'm sorry that I violated God's law in committing that sin against my brother or sister in Christ. That I'm sorry for that. It's one that's willing to acknowledge their sins. In Psalms 51, most of your Bibles probably at the heading of this psalm will say it would be the psalm of David that he committed with Bathsheba. And that seems to be what he's talking about here. He said, for I acknowledge my transgression." You know, I've often wondered, is this why God didn't kill David or have him killed as a result of committing adultery and having Uriah put to death? It's because of the contrite heart that David had. Do you realize adultery was a capital offense under the Old Testament law? He said, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. That gives us a little problem sometimes, doesn't it? But we understand the sin also was against Uriah and against Bathsheba as well. But really sin, if you just look at sin, it's always against God, isn't it? Regardless of what the sin is. He said, and have done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. No, he's not saying that he was born in sin. But when he was born, there was sin all around. I think is what the psalmist is talking about. But here he acknowledged his transgressions and his sin. A contrite heart will do that. David's sin, we can see. 2 Samuel 12, verses 9, verses 13. He said, Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Said, so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And he had. Have you ever gone through the scriptures just to see how many times the scriptures, it says in the scriptures that I have sinned? How many times can you find that? It's not very many times, is it? If I remember, it's less than 10. I'll say that. If you read more than that, let me know and I'll be sure to correct that. But it's not too many times. 
If we have a contrite heart, then I'm willing to acknowledge the sin that I'm guilty of. David did that on this occasion. I've seen it. This was something, obviously, that was extremely troubling, I think, to David, as it should be. And, of course, with others as well. Here we can see how troubling Paul's life was. You know, a person that has a contrite heart, if one is guilty of sin, then it's troubling to them because of the sins that they're guilty of, regardless of who it is. If I have a contrite heart, sin troubles me. It bothers me. Paul said, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he had counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. He said, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, he said, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul says, of whom I am chief. There's how he felt about it. You know, the person with a contrite heart, sin and sin in our lives trouble us and bother us. And it should trouble us and bother us. It should eat away at our conscience until we make that right with God. Until we make it right with the person that we may have violated or sinned against. Trouble Paul. And all of us with a contrite heart, sin in our lives will trouble us as well. You know, when we commit sin, we don't try to start shifting the blame, trying to blame somebody else. Not if I have a contrite heart. You know, what I'm going to do is acknowledge the wrong that I have committed, and I'm going to seek the forgiveness that is offered through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm going to do. In Genesis 3, verses 9 through 13, he said, Then the Lord called a, uh, to Adam and said to him, he said, Where are you? And so he said, I, have, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? He said, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to, uh, gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Did she force him to eat that? Did she make him eat that? Or did he simply try to shift the blame? He said, well, it's her fault. This is the reason that I did that. This is the reason that I violated your command. It's the woman that you gave me. And really, in one sense of the word, he's almost accusing God. Looked like to me you gave me somebody better than her. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I hate. This is an age-old problem, isn't it? Someone is always trying to shift the blame for their sins. You know, if I sin, it's not Sylvia's fault. It's not anybody in my family's fault. No, it's my fault. And if I have a contrite heart, then I acknowledge my sin, and I accept responsibilities for the sins I have committed, and I seek forgiveness that is offered to the Lord. We must acknowledge our sins, the Bible says. 
In Luke 15, verses 8 and verses 21. The prodigal son. You realize that there are four things that are lost in Luke 15. You, you know that, don't you? There's a sheep, a coin, here's the prodigal son, and there's the old, older son too. And really the parable is about the older son. That applies to the situation if you read that with that thought in mind. We many times focus on the prodigal son. That's good to focus on the prodigal son. I'm not saying that's not. But he said, I will rise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He said, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Here's a person that has a contrite heart. He acknowledged what he had done. He acknowledged the fact that he had wasted everything that the father had given him on prodigal living. The older son says that he wasted it on harlots as well in the text of this as well. But here you can see that a contrite heart is a heart that acknowledges sin. A contrite heart is one that seeks the mercy that is offered by God as well. In Psalms 51, verses 1 and 2, he said, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. We'll look at that a little later in our studies. Pure heart seeks to be cleansed. His appeal was to the loving kindness and the tender mercies of God. Robert Taylor in his studies on Psalms says, Grace is God's giving us what we do not deserve. Mercy is God's refusal to give us what we do deserve. Understand that? Grace gives us something that we don't deserve, and mercy is withholding something that we do deserve. What is it that we do deserve? We deserve damnation. We deserve condemnation because of the sins that we're guilty of. But, but because of the grace and mercy of God, we can be forgiven. If it wasn't for God's grace and mercy, none of us would have any hope at all. Every one of us would be lost. In Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, it said, But God, who is rich in his mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Grace and mercy. Grace receiving that which we don't deserve and mercy withholding that which we do deserve. It's because of the grace and mercy of God that we can be forgiven. But you know, we have to seek that mercy, don't we? Here's an illustration in the Bible of that. In Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, he said, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. They trusted that they were righteous and despised others. That's hard for me to fathom. Especially when we think about our lives and, and the way that we've lived and led our lives and, and the sins that we're guilty of in our own lives. To think I'm more righteous and holy than someone else. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, 
I thank you that I'm not like other men. Boy, he was pretty proud of it. I'm not like everybody else. I'm a lot better than they are. He said extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. Then he boasts about what he does. He said, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There's an illustration of a contrite heart that seeks the mercy that is offered by the grace and mercy of God. He realized his state and condition. He would not even raise his eyes toward the heaven. He beats upon his breast and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, who does that not describe? or else should describe us all if I'm guilty of sin of a person that will not lift his eyes toward heaven and simply ask for the grace and mercy of God. See, that's what a contrite heart will do. It seeks that mercy that is offered. Let me suggest something else. A contrite heart is that which would ask for forgiveness as well. In Psalms 51, look again, verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. He said, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden parts you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with a hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy, or make me hear joy and gladness. He said, That the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. See, here's a person that has a contrite heart that asks for forgiveness. Do you think there are some people that are too proud and too haughty to ask for forgiveness? Do you think that there are some people that have such a proud, haughty spirit that when they've sinned against a brother or sister in Christ, that they're so proud and haughty that they can't acknowledge wrong and they will not ask for forgiveness? Oh, I'm afraid that describes some people sometimes. Through the years, I've run across a few things. But you see, if I have a contrite heart, then I'm going to ask for forgiveness. Notice this appeal of David. Psalms 25, verse 7, verse 11, verses 18. He said, Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me. For your goodness' sakes, O God, or O Lord. Then he said, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. You know, a lot of times when I think of David, the first thing it almost seems like comes to my mind is the sins that David was guilty of. The sins with Bathsheba, having Uriah the Hittite put to death. But really, if you look at David and look at it, look at his life a little deeper than just the sins that he was guilty of, he sought forgiveness. But as you read the Psalms, you have to be impressed with what David thought about God, how he was in awe of God, and how he realized that he was a sinner and he needed forgiveness. And he sought that forgiveness. 
And he was a person despite the fact that he was a great warrior that realized his need for God and was willing to ask for forgiveness of the sins that he was guilty of. The Bible tells us that we have to call upon the name of the Lord if we're going to be forgiven. It said, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved in Acts 2 and verses 21. Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, quoting from the book of Joel. Always find it interesting as you look at this, and those in the denominational world tell us that this means you call and ask in prayer, the Lord will forgive you. That's not what this is talking about in this, this verse. In Acts 2, verses 36, 37, and 38, same text, just a little later in that text. He said, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now did they call upon the name of the Lord here? Is this how they call upon the name of the Lord so that they could be saved? There's how they call. They call by repenting of their sins and by being baptized in water for the remission of those sins. That's how they appeal to God that he might save them and redeem them from the sins that they were guilty of. Peter quotes Joel 2 and then makes application of it in verses 36, 37, and 38. That's how you call upon the name of the Lord. That's how you seek forgiveness for the sins that one may be guilty of. As an alien sinner, one who has never received the forgiveness of sins. That's what he tells us to do. And that's what we have to do, is to seek forgiveness. The Bible tells us that we obviously have to be washed to be made clean. Ananias tells Saul, said, Saul, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, washing away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. had a guy respond to a little sermon that I put on YouTube. We put little three-minute sermons on YouTube each week for people to look at, and then we share them on our, our uh, Facebook uh, page as well. This guy responded, and he was objecting to the fact that I said that the uh, thief on the cross wasn't saved by faith only, as they try to contend, but he lived and died under the Old Testament law. Well, he took exception to that. He and I have been going back and forth a little bit uh, with, with this. But you know, that's, that, that's what, he, what he says. You know, he, he says, and he even, uh, 1 Peter 3, verses 21, said the like figure weren't to the baptism also now save us. He said it's not the putting with the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. And he even wrote in brackets and put sin in 1 Peter 3, 21. And I said, well, now you put something there that the Bible didn't put there. And I said, you added something to the Lord's thought. I said, either baptism saves us or it does not. Now, what does 1 Peter 3 say? Does it say it saves us? Well, that's what it says. Even Saul himself was told, or Paul, to arise and be baptized, washing away your sins. It's when you're baptized into the death of Jesus Christ that you receive the benefits of that blood because it was in his death that he shed his blood. 
You know, the problem with Romans 6 that people have with the denominational world is that they bury a man who is alive according to them. Do you bury people who are alive? Well, I hope not. You know, I've always had a fear of that. I always told Sylvia, I said, when I die, you're still living. I said, you make sure they get all the blood out because I know if they get all the blood out, I'm dead. I've always had this fear of being buried alive. I, I'm not real sure why, but that's just something I've always thought about. But, but you know, according to denominational baptism, that's exactly what they do. Look at Romans 6. Read those first six, seven, eight verses. You know the person that they bury in that text? It's not the person who's alive. But according to the denominational concept of salvation, if you're saved at the point of faith, then that's exactly who you would bury there. You'd bury a person who is alive. But no, the person that you bury in Romans 6 is the person who's dead. It's the old man of sin. He only becomes a new creature in Christ Jesus when he arises from the waters of baptism. It's there that he receives the benefits of the blood of Jesus Christ and his sins are washed away. See, that's how we are forgiven. See, we have to seek forgiveness. In Revelation 1, in verses 5, he said in from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. It's because of the blood of Jesus Christ that you and I can be forgiven. And that's made available to every person that we all can be forgiven. All can be washed in the blood of the Lamb. The law apart for the erring child of God. In Acts 8, you can see here, talking about Simon the sorcerer, he had already believed, repented, and been baptized. Earlier, we can see that. He said, and when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perished with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Even when I sin, after becoming a child of God, I can still have access to the blood of Jesus Christ. It's when I'm willing to repent of those sins and pray and ask for His forgiveness as a result of having sorrow in my heart for the sins that I'm guilty of that I can be forgiven and washed. So if I have a contrite heart, then I'm willing to ask for forgiveness. Let me suggest something else to you. A contrite heart is one that desires change as well. In Psalms 51, verses 10 through 12, he said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. A contrite heart is one that desires change. You know, hearts are soul with sin. And a contrite heart, they're now clean. He said that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. See, the contrite heart desires change, and he does change. As a result of being forgiven, he changes. He has a relationship with God. He no longer walks in darkness, but he walks in 
the light of God's word. He's now clean. He's now purified. And he now enjoys a relationship with God. He's steadfast and he's faithful to the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles who are not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Paul regret his former lifestyle? Yeah. Did he regret that he was a persecutor of the church? Yes, he regretted that. But did he continue that course of life? Or did he make change? Once it was pointed out that he was persecuting the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he changed it. When you look at your life and you see that your life is not right with God, when you see that your heart's not right with the Lord, do you desire change? Do you want to change things in your life? You know, you can. With God's help and with God's grace, you can certainly change things in your life. You know, there's joy in serving the Lord. He said, now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, and so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Do you find it a great joy when you see someone obey the gospel of Jesus Christ? Boy, that does my heart get. I don't know about you, but it does me. There's only one person that I know of in the Bible that was sad because people repented. You know who that was, don't you? That was John. Never did quite understand that. I'm always happy when people repent. See? And there's nothing that brings us any greater joy than to see people obey the gospel. And then there's joy in serving the Lord. You know, I've been a very fortunate fellow in my lifetime. I, I got to see my mom step out and come down to the front to be baptized into Christ. Not, not many people get to see that. But I did. I got to see that. I got to see my son obey the gospel. What a, what a great joy. That to see people that you love and care very deeply for. And, and then the joy of serving God, of being able to work in his kingdom. Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. And he writes this from a Roman prison. And Paul could rejoice. You know, there's some things that that Roman prison couldn't stop in Paul's life. Couldn't stop him from writing. Couldn't stop him from teaching. It couldn't stop him from praying. And it couldn't stop him from rejoicing. And regardless of the circumstances that you may find yourself in in life, those circumstances cannot rob us of the joy of serving the Lord unless we let it regardless of what circumstances we find ourselves in. And one of the point, the lesson will be yours. You know, a contrite heart is one that will do good in services to the Lord. Once again, in Psalms 51, verses 13 through 17, he said, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of 
of God are a broken spirit, uh, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. There's our text. I will teach transgressors your way. Serving the Lord. You know, we always should want the truth and be, should be willing to share it with other people. Is, is there anything greater that you could do for someone than teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is there anything greater that you could do for your children than to live godly yourself and to teach them about the Lord? No, that's the greatest thing that you could do. My dad was an alcoholic. And I tried every way in the world to teach him the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, I can look myself in the mirror and know I tried. I wasn't successful, but I know I tried. And I like Paul says here, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, and that's the way I felt for my people, is that they might be saved. He said, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. But Paul's love and desire was that they might be saved. And that should be our desire as well. And then praise God. In Psalms 100, those five verses says, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all ye lands, and serve the Lord with gladness, and come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pastors. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. Do you ever sit sometimes and just think about how good God's been to you? Do you ever think about all the blessings that he has showered upon you day in and day out? It's amazing. We think sometimes in the term of physical things, and that's great. But think about the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ Jesus, the forgiveness of sins and the hope that we have of eternal life. He's worthy of our praise. And then certainly we worship in spirit and truth. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Must. That's what Jesus said. What an awesome conversation that Jesus has with this woman at the well. You know, she was pretty amazed that he would even say anything to her, speak to her. First of all, that she was a woman. Jews didn't speak to women much. And on top of that, she was a Samaritan woman. And yet Jesus has this conversation with her. She goes into the city of Sychar and tells about her encounter with Jesus. And they come out to the in Hosea 6, in verse 6, he said, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. As I said earlier, it's not that he didn't require sacrifices. It's not that he didn't require burnt offerings, but he wanted people with a contrite heart to offer those to him and in services to him. And so now a contrite heart is one that will acknowledge sin, that seeks mercy, asks for forgiveness, desires to change their life and then once their life is changed they'll do good in services to the Lord 
they'll honor him and serve him. And what a force for good, brethren, you and I can be for the Lord when we're righteous and holy and godly. Do you realize that if our nation is going to be saved from destruction, it's going to be saved because of you and I? Because you and I are a people with a contrite heart that seeks the Lord to seek to honor Him and to glorify Him and seeks to instill those principles in other people as well so that they might be saved by the grace and mercy of God. It begins with us. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, what's keeping you from obeying the gospel? Or if you've obeyed the gospel and you've drifted away and you've allowed corruption to come in your life and to corrupt your heart, repent of those things. Have that contrite heart and spirit. Be willing to ask the Lord to forgive you and to cleanse you. We'll pray with and for you. The Lord will cleanse you. So if you're here and set the Lord's invitation, make your way to the front and let your wishes be made known as we stand together to sing this. Won't you come with us?